I uh, read an absolutely fascinating article the other day, you guys. I mean, it blew my mind when I saw it. And so the article was basically spelling out how in the Western world in the 21st century, the number of atheists the people who don't believe there is a God, was on the rise. Now, that's not super surprising. You guys probably believe that or understand that intuitively. We see it more and more in our culture. But what was really interesting about this article was not that the number of atheists were on the rise, but it was that at the same time that the number of atheists were on the rise, this article pointed out a study that showed that the number of people who believe there is an afterlife was on the rise. That is so interesting. Like, what a curious thing to discover. What a, what a, what a strange contradiction, if we're going to be really frank, right? Like the idea that there would be no God, and yet there would still be a heaven, or perhaps even a hell. It's like, you know, they, it would be like if they conducted a study, and they found out that the number of vegan steak eaters was on the rise, you know? It was like, no, that doesn't make sense. It would be like if they figured out that the number of people who claim to be non-smokers but burn through a whole pack every day was on the rise. Like, those two things don't seem to go together. Either you believe there's a God and therefore you would believe there's an afterlife, but what we see is this kind of cognitive dissonance. We see this disconnect between people who say, no, nah, I don't believe there's any God or at least any God I've ever heard of, and yet I still believe, or maybe I hope that there is an afterlife that I'll go to one day. What that says to me is that there is a lot of interest in the afterlife, even if there isn't a ton of answers in our world. People are genuinely curious about what happens to them when they die, and they want to believe that there's more to life than what they're living right now, that one day they might be reunited with their loved ones, that one day they might find a place of pure gold, love, honesty, happiness, puppies, unicorns, whatever else it is in their heaven. They would love for that to be true. Because I think deep down inside, every single person, including you and me, I think we have a sense that we were created for something more. That there is a longing inside of us for something that's transcendent, something that's greater, something that we might even describe as divine. There's an author that I love, and I could quote him every single Sunday if I wanted to. I don't. I spare you that. But his name's C.S. Lewis. He wrote a bunch of great stuff. And he has a quote that I think fits so well with this study. He said this, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was actually made for another world altogether. This longing for transcendence, this denial that there's a God, and yet this hope or assurance or belief that there is an afterlife, it reflects the fact that the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men and women. There's just something inside of us. We may not be able to define it. We may have trouble putting it into words. Uh, We may be afraid of what our friends think when we start talking about it. But it's like the idea of eternity has been placed in our hearts by God himself. So this month, the whole month of August, we're in a series that we're calling Afterlife. And we're answering the question, 
What happens to you when you die, at least from a biblical perspective? And I told you last week that I'm not going to try to convince you. You can hear what the Bible says. We're going to lay it out pretty plainly, and then you can make up your own mind on it. But I'll point out that if you're like the people in our bumper video, and you're like, nah, I don't believe there's a God, or I don't believe there's a heaven, but I hope there would be a heaven. Like, I'm not sure there is. I haven't seen evidence for it. But gosh, deep down inside, I wish that were true. If you find yourself in that situation, or if you find yourself thinking, you know, oh no, there is no heaven, you know, I don't believe in any of that, regardless of whether you're open-minded, closed-minded to it, my prayer is that you'll see what God has in store for his followers, and you'll understand that truthfully, most of the stuff you've been taught about the afterlife is dead wrong from a biblical perspective. It's actually not found in the Bible, whether we're talking about heaven, whether we're talking about hell, we're talking about other aspects, judgment, whatever it is. The the truth is the things that culture has taught us, they really don't line up with what we read in the scripture. And so we're spending this month kind of walking through some of the passages in the Bible that deal with the subject of heaven, hell, and the afterlife, all right? So let's go to the same passage. We, I told you last week, we are going to be in the same section of scripture for four straight weeks. The whole month, we're gonna be in this one passage because it's that deep, it's that amazing, it's like there's a lot to it. And uh, we're gonna read through this again. I'm gonna point out a couple of things that you might wanna be aware of as we go through it. And then we're gonna talk about it, okay? Luke chapter number 16, verse 19 Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen who lived each day in luxury. I pointed out last week, I'll point out for those of you guys who weren't here, this guy lived a very cushy life. He wasn't like a CEO of a company. He didn't like make a fortune in the dot-com boom and then sell all his stocks and live out the rest of his days happy. Like this was old money. This was a guy who'd never had to work a day in his life. He put on a robe and slippers. He watched, you know, talk shows all day. Like he lived a very easy life. At his gate, at his gate, just outside of his palace, his estate, literally at the end of his driveway, lay a poor man who was named Lazarus. And I pointed out to you last week that Lazarus is the only character in one of Jesus' parables that gets a name. That might indicate that this isn't a parable at all. Jesus is actually giving us a true story about two men. There at, the, at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. I mean, he was in a bad situation. Finally, the poor man died. And he was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. I told you last week in the Jewish religion, they believe that when they go to heaven, their ancestor, whom they call Father Abraham, would be waiting there for them, right? So we think like, oh, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to see my Nana. I can't wait to just hug her and all that. In Jesus' day, people would be most excited about seeing their spiritual ancestors, in particular, Abraham. And in this story, Abraham is going to serve as a God figure, so to speak. So the Bible says the uh, poor man died. He was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. That is, he goes to heaven. Then the rich man also died, because everybody dies, whether you're poor or rich. The rich man also died, and he was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead, which means he went to hell, the other place. That was a Jewish way of saying that. They're in torment. Oh, 
Man, we're going to talk about torment next week. So if you're like, all right, I'm here, I'm hearing about heaven. What's the other side of the equation? What does the Bible really say? Is it all like lake of fire and burning sulfur and all that? We're going to talk about it next week. So you're going to want to come back, I promise. All right. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted. Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers and I want to warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. That is, they have the Old Testament. They have the Jewish Bible. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and they will turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, there is a whole lot in this passage, and this morning, as I mentioned, we are going to hone in, in particular, on the concept of heaven. Now, you need to understand, if you want to read the Bible correctly, if you are new to um, approaching the Bible, you need to recognize that it is not written like an encyclopedia, You can't go to the Bible, flip to the section entitled heaven, and you've got 30 pages where it spells out every aspect of what you want to know. The Bible is not written like Wikipedia. Instead, the Bible is written as a nonfiction story. That means it has narrative, it has characters, it has themes and plot. And so if you want to get an accurate and full understanding of what the afterlife is like according to the Bible, then you have to look at a whole bunch of different passages so that you can see what the Bible says across time throughout its pages. Does that make sense? I hope so. Too many people approach the Bible the wrong way. They expect to go to one place and find every answer that the Bible has, and that's not how it's written. You actually have to search throughout in order to see the answers that are there. So, We're going to look at Luke 16. We're later going to go to Revelation 21 and 22. There are a whole bunch of other passages that deal with the subject of heaven. And so I'm going to answer some of your questions this morning. And then like, you know, any good information, the the answers that I give you are going to raise new questions. And they may be answered for you here. They may not. That's okay. Just because you don't have answers doesn't mean that answers don't exist. It just means you haven't found them yet. So keep at it. Keep studying keep reading. The Bible says about itself that it is living, it's active. That means you could study it every day for the rest of your life and you still wouldn't be able to figure it all out. For goodness sake, you guys, I have college degrees in the Bible and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've never seen this before. I can't believe it's in there. So let me encourage you to stay engaged in reading the scripture and to read it in a proper way. By the, by the way, in September, we're going to do a whole Sunday morning on how to read the Bible correctly. Correctly. It's going to be super helpful, I promise you guys. Uh, it's the last Sunday in September, I believe, so look forward to that. It's going to be really cool. Okay, now here's the thing. I want to point out something that, man, I love this. 
If you look at Lazarus, remember Lazarus is the poor man who goes to heaven in this story. And if you look at Lazarus' situation, you know what you don't see? You don't see clouds and harps and angels' wings. You don't see the typical picture of heaven, do you? Because that's what normally people, like if you see a cartoon and they die and they go to heaven, what happens? They grow wings, they get a harp, and they float around on clouds all day. Now, here's the deal. I don't have anything against harps, okay? Harps are beautiful. In fact, we had a harpist at our wedding. It was so fancy, you guys. We had a harpist at our wedding, and really, it was quite nice. She played beautifully. I don't have any problem with a harp. But listen, if God is going to give me an instrument and say, Dan, you need to play this instrument for all of eternity, I don't want a harp. I want a Telecaster. Like, let's get something with some distortion on it, you know? Now, there are some of you guys that want a harp. That's okay. I get it. But what you don't see what you don't see in this picture of heaven, and by the way, you don't see it in any picture of heaven that's presented in the Bible. Nowhere. You don't see people floating around on clouds, flying on baby angel wings, playing the harp, and being bored silly. You don't see any of that. And that really leads us to the biggest key that you need to burn into your mind. If you want to understand what the Bible has to say on the subject of heaven, this is where you need to start, and it needs to be the foundation of every single thing that you learn from this point forward. Are you ready for it? Heaven, from a biblical perspective, heaven is both a physical place and a spiritual state. It is both a physical place and it's a spiritual state of being. Now, again, we don't think of heaven as being physical. Every movie you've ever seen presents heaven as like ghostly, spiritual, ethereal. We're all like kind of nebulous cloud ghost things floating around, you know? Every time your Nana told you a story about heaven, it was like you were up in the clouds somewhere. Even a lot of religious teachings, some of it, Christian, some of it not. Even a lot of the religious teachings has led you to believe that heaven is going to take place up there, out there somewhere, and you're going to be a spirit floating around forever. And yet here in Luke chapter number 16, and again, I promise you, in every other passage in the Bible, it's not spiritual and ghostly. It's very physical. I mean, think about Lazarus, and this is true both of, of heaven and hell. We're going to talk about this next week as well. It is very physical. Think about Lazarus, the man in this story who's in heaven. The Bible says that he occupies physical space. How does a ghost occupy physical space? You ever see Ghost Dad, that old movie, you know? Like the, the bus just drives right through him. Ghosts don't occupy physical space, and yet Lazarus occupies physical space. The Bible is really clear. It goes out of its way to point out the fact that they have body parts in heaven. It says that Lazarus is at Abraham's side. And really, the picture that's being given there is that he's being embraced. Abraham has his arm around his shoulders. The rich man says, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water, a physical substance, 
and then let him come over here and cool my tongue. Those are all very physical things. Ghosts don't do that. People who are floating around on clouds don't do those sorts of things because the Bible presents heaven as a physical space, not a spiritual space. And I'm telling you, you need to understand this to understand heaven from a scriptural perspective. So where does this disconnect come from? How come everybody's told you heaven is angels floating around on a cloud and playing harps and it sounds terribly boring, and yet when you read the New Testament, you get a very different picture, which we're going to fill out here in just a sec. All right, the disconnect comes from a guy who lived 400 years before Jesus was born. His name was Plato. Do you remember Plato? Not Plato, like Fun Factory, but Plato, the father of ancient philosophy, You remember him from school? He lived a few hundred years before Jesus, and he said a lot of very interesting, very wise, and frankly, pretty crazy things. And so Plato developed this idea that he called the theory of forms. Now, if you're like, dude, I didn't come here for a philosophy lesson. I get that. Stay with me for two minutes, okay? Plato developed this idea that he called the theory of forms. And basically, in his philosophy, he believed that everything that was here on earth Every physical thing that you and I see and interact with, including us, was an imperfect representation of the ideal version or form of that that exists in heaven. So according to Plato, you've never seen the color blue, really. You've only seen imperfect representations of the color blue. And one day, you'll attain that perfect form in heaven, And you're going to be like, whoa, blue, I can't even believe it, okay? According to Plato, you, the physical you that's sitting here in a movie theater seat this morning, you are not the real you, according to Plato's philosophy. You're the physical, imperfect, limited, incomplete version of you. And the real version of you is spiritual. It's pure, and it exists only in the heavenly realm. And so, in Plato's philosophy, if people want to become their true selves, the way you do that is by shedding your mortal body and going to heaven to be reunited or to become the true you. Now, you can start to see some of the parallels between what Plato taught and what people have been telling you your whole life that heaven is like. In truth, Plato's theory of forms has informed and shaped your understanding of what heaven is more than anybody else except Jesus. And so what happened was Jesus, the Jewish rabbi who had an incredibly Jewish perspective of heaven, After he taught and his disciples went on and made more disciples and more disciples and more disciples, a few generations later, there were a group of Greek and Roman Christians, and they started to learn the teachings of Jesus about heaven, and they started to combine them with the teachings of Plato about heaven. Because they're like, oh yeah, I was taught about heaven in school. It's like this spiritual, ghostly, you know, sort of pure realm. And so when we die here, Jesus takes us to that heaven. And over time, that became the dominant view of what heaven is. 
But when you read the words of Jesus, you don't listen to cartoons, you don't believe everything you read in books and, you know, from your philosophy professors and all that. When you read the words of Jesus, you don't see a nebulous, ghostly, airy, ethereal sort of heaven. It is intensely physical. Because from a Jewish perspective, that is from a a biblical and Christian perspective, the physical world is not bad. It's good. When, When we read in the book of Genesis that God created humanity, the Bible is super clear. It actually says, when man gained a body, he became a living soul. That is, he was not a living soul until he also had a physical body. From a biblical perspective, from God's perspective, certainly from Jesus' perspective, there is no way to separate the physical you from the spiritual or the soul you. You are one in the same. That's how God created you. And that's not bad. That's good. When God created the universe and everything in it, including you, what did he say? He didn't say, well, it's an incomplete form of what I had in mind, but it's good enough. No, God created things and he's like, oh, that's good. And he created another thing. He's like, yeah, that's good. That's good. It's good. It's good. Then he created women and he's like, it's very good. Seriously, that's how the Bible goes. So God is not opposed to physical. In fact, physical is real. All the philosophies, all the pop culture teaching that you've heard all along is that physical is bad, it dies, it decomposes and decays, and one day you will become the perfect and pure you in heaven. And from a biblical perspective, that could not be more wrong because heaven is very physical when you read about it in the Bible. Now, this is why so many of you think heaven is going to suck. Because you believe that you're going to float around on a cloud and it's going to be one never-ending church service. You're not going to do anything cool. You're just going to be like, oh my God, is it ever going to be over? No. And you're afraid of that. And I don't blame you. Because to be quite frank, I wouldn't enjoy that kind of heaven either. I wouldn't enjoy that kind of heaven. It seems like I was created for more than to sit there and do nothing. If my whole life, everybody I know from my parents to the ancient teachers in the Bible have said, you were created to do something meaningful, why would I spend eternity doing nothing at all? It does not make sense. And that's because God created you for something more. If heaven is primarily spiritual, it is going to be missing nearly everything that makes life so great. I mean, eating a delicious meal, the joy of traveling somewhere new, hugging your kids, being intimate with the person you love, those are all physical things. And if there's no physicality in heaven, because we're all ghosts and spirits floating around and things like that, then heaven probably will suck. It probably won't be half as great as what I read in the Bible. The Bible presents a very different picture. Now, here's the cool part. Not only are we physical in the afterlife, but heaven itself is physical 
2. So let's look at Revelation chapter number 21. We're just going to read a couple of verses here. But in Revelation 21, understand that Revelation 21, Revelation 22 are the end of the Bible. There's nothing after that, okay, except the book of Concordance. It's not a real book of the Bible, okay? Revelation 21 and 22 gives us the clearest, most detailed picture of heaven. And it's written by John, one of the followers of Jesus, same dude who wrote the book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He's written a lot in the Bible. And at the end of his life, God gives John a picture of heaven, the ultimate reality that we're all headed towards. And he says, I want you to write it down so that people will know what it's going to be like. Revelation chapter number 21, John is speaking here, and he says in this vision, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I don't have time to go into all of this this morning. One day, let's sit down and have coffee and let me talk to you about the nature of the ultimate heaven. Because the place that we go to when we die right now is not the ultimate heaven. That's why people get confused. Because they're like, wait a sec, what I'm reading about here doesn't jive with what I know about death and what I've been taught and that people you know, experience when they die. And so he says here, there is a new heaven and a new earth that's coming. When people die today and they go into the afterlife, they experience heaven and hell, but it is not the ultimate experience of heaven and hell that they will encounter. We don't have time to go into it. If you want to know more, read Revelation 21 and 22, and then email me with questions because you'll have plenty. Okay. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. Don't get freaked out by that. That's a metaphor. We don't have time to explain. It doesn't mean there's no water in heaven. There absolutely is. Okay. He says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Heaven in the Bible is pictured as a city, not a cloud, not a castle in the sky. It's a city like Jerusalem, Calgary. It's a city. It's a place. It's like similar to what you've experienced in life, but yet completely different. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Again, he's talking about heaven here. Coming down from God out of heaven. Do you understand that according to the Bible, heaven is not out there somewhere? The ultimate heaven where you and I will spend eternity with God is right here. Heaven comes down to us. We don't go to heaven. We couldn't get there. Instead, heaven has to come down to us. It models. It repeats the same pattern that we saw when God came down in the first Christmas to us because we couldn't get to him either. The Bible pictures heaven as a city, and it comes down from God to earth like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with him. Why does it repeat that three times here and 12 times throughout the last two chapters of this passage? Because it's important. God will be among us in heaven. We don't go to heaven to be with God. God comes to us and brings heaven with him. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. That includes you. You're part of everything. 
I mean, truly, God is making you new. He is at work in your life. You may have been running from him. You may have been ignoring him. You may have been doubting him. You may have been fighting him. It doesn't matter. In the end, God is making everything, including you, new. The question is whether or not you're going to cooperate or you're going to fight him into eternity over what he's trying to do. Behold, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down. For what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Listen, you could get your idea and concept and belief about heaven from like the Looney Tunes if you want to, okay? But this is trustworthy and true. This is written so you would know what's coming. This is written so that you didn't have to wonder and be afraid and unsure. This is written so that you would come to believe that the heaven that God has prepared for you is way better than you could have ever hoped. It includes all the things that you love so much about life, and it includes them in such a way that they are no longer bent by selfishness and greed and abuse, but they are perfect and good and unaffected by our sin. You see, eternity with God is not heavenly in the way that we normally think of it. It is earthly. I mean, it is like the world as you know it, but so much better. If you were to continue reading Revelation 21 and 22, you would start to see some descriptions of heaven that might sound familiar if you've also read the book of Genesis. Because Revelation 21 and 22 talk about heaven and it being a place where there is a river. And not only that, but next to the river are trees that grow in a beautiful garden. And there is fruit that can be eaten by the people in the garden. If you've ever read the book of Genesis, you're like, whoa, there are some really striking parallels between those two passages. And the reason that they sound so similar is because the big story, when you look at history on the grandest scale, we find that God has bookended both the Bible and our existence with the same scene and setting, the Garden of Eden. That in heaven, the ultimate place that you and I will spend eternity with God and our loved ones and, and all of those people, that in heaven, we are essentially experiencing the recreated, restored, renewed, redeemed earth that Adam and Eve lived on originally. Only this time, there's no possibility for you and I to screw it up. This is the promise that God makes. Not that you'll grow angel wings and play a harp in the clouds in the sky, but that you will spend the rest of your days enjoying God and his creation on a new earth in a new heaven. Hey, what if God didn't give you a, a harp when you got to heaven? What if God gave you a microscope and he said, you love to learn and make discoveries here on earth in the, in the old life? Go learn about the new earth that I've created. Go make some discoveries. Have a blast. What if God didn't give you a harp or a microscope? What if he gave you a typewriter? And he said, go write a story that people will love to read for the rest of eternity. What if he gave you a paintbrush? What if he gave you a family? What if he gave you the things, the good gifts that you've always wanted, but you've never been able to experience the way you should because they've always been marred and broken by sin? What if he gave you all of those things the way that he originally intended, pure and perfect and good? 
hey, doesn't that sound better? Like, doesn't that heaven sound so much better than what you've been told so far? And the cool part is the heaven I just told you about, because it comes directly from the Bible, is trustworthy and true. Now, there's still a problem. We're going to develop this idea a lot next week. So if you're curious, if you're angry, if you want to argue with me in your mind over this, let's chat after next week, okay? But you need to understand that the thing that most makes heaven heaven is going to make it hell for some people. The thing that makes heaven most heaven is going to be miserable for the majority of people. Because what the Bible says the greatest part of heaven is, is not the new earth, it's not the discovery, it's not the perfect relationships and no more greed and jealousy and gossip and punching and fighting and racist rallies and all that stuff. It's not just that we get to experience a world without those things. The greatest part of heaven is God's presence himself. When you read Revelation 21 and 22, I told you 12 separate times in those two chapters, the Bible goes out of its way to say that God will be with us. We will be his people. He'll love us as a father loves his children. The greatest part of heaven for me is that I am going to be with God. Now, here's the deal. So many of you have been avoiding God's presence your entire life. And somehow you expect that one day you're gonna get to paradise and the thing that really makes it paradise, the tangible presence, the relationship of God, that somehow your mind is gonna change. And as we talked about last week, if you weren't here, you didn't hear it, go get the podcast, listen to it. Your mind will not change when you get to heaven. Understand that if you spend your entire life now saying, oh, I could never have anything to do with a God who would allow this or that. Maybe it's some general evil we see in our world. Maybe it's something very specific that happened in your life. I want you to understand that when you stand before God, you're still going to be pissed and bitter at him because you never dealt with it. You're going to be right in front of him and you're going to say, God, you were absent my whole life. Why do you want me to spend eternity with you? Forget that. And you're going to walk away and you're going to experience what the Bible describes as hell, separation from God. There are going to be some of you that say, oh God, I made a mess of my life. You're standing before him on judgment day and you say, God, I know I don't deserve heaven. I get it. I get it. I get it. Tell you what, let me go do some good things. Let me try to prove to you that I deserve to be here. And you're going to walk away from heaven. You're going to walk away from God's grace and you're going to attempt to justify yourself by your works. And God's already said that doesn't work. You can come up with any excuse, whatever it is that is holding God at arm's length from you in this life will continue to hold you at arm's length from God in the afterlife. You've got to understand that. You think the only thing you're missing is information. If I just saw God, well, then of course I would believe. Sure, you'd believe, but you'd still be angry. You'd still be bitter and you'd still be hurt. And so unless you learn to love God's presence now, you're not going to love it then. Unless you develop a relationship with God today, you're not going to want a relationship with him for eternity. And you're going to spend all of forever trying to get away from God, 
just like you spent all of your life trying to get away from God. That is what the Bible says about heaven. And that's where we're going next week when it comes to hell. The good news is it does not have to be that way. You don't have to fight against God. You don't have to hide from God. You can have a relationship with him now and you will find out why we sing what a beautiful name it is. What a powerful name it is. That's why I, as an American boy, I don't talk about kings and queens and things like that. We're in Canada. We don't even talk about the queen that we have here. And yet I am glad to lift my hands and say, Jesus Christ, my king. Because I've got a relationship with him now. I've got peace about heaven because I've got a relationship with him now. I'm not sweating the afterlife. I mean, I don't want to die. Like I'm not looking to die or anything, you guys. But when that day comes, I'm either going to wake up in my heavenly father's embrace or I'm not going to wake up at all. So it seems like a good bet to me. And if you've been running and hiding and holding back God, let me tell you that today is the day to do something about it. Don't wait and see, man, that lady in the video, she said, well, I don't know what's going to happen. I guess I'll wait and see when I get there. The things that hold you back from God now will hold you back from him in heaven as well. So let me give you the opportunity to do this. Let me give you a chance to restart a relationship with Jesus, to have a relationship with God so that when the day comes and you stand before him, you'll know why you're in heaven and you'll love being there because the best part is you are reunited to the God, the father who created you and loved you. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're comfortable, if you're in that place where you're like, God, I I don't know, I, I want you. I want eternity with you, but I want you even now then I'm gonna invite you to pray this prayer out loud. It's very short, it's not magic, nothing crazy is gonna happen to you, but you will begin a new relationship with God. So I'll ask everybody, just say this out loud, even if you've already said it once before, that's okay, it'll make everybody feel comfortable. Let's say this, dear God, I need forgiveness and a fresh start. Thank you for giving me both and an eternal relationship with you.